Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Mike Rowe here with a radical idea. If you want to see more companies make more things in this country, buy more things from more companies who make things in this country. I refer in this case to the incredible t-shirts, sweatshirts, blue jeans, and more made by my friends at American Giant. Everything American Giant makes is made in the United States. And right now, you can take 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com slash Mike. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Pollock and Thurston. We have lots to discuss coming out of SummerSlam weekend. We will be discussing the most recent season of Dark Side of the Ring. We're going to dive into numbers. We've got slides on this show, courtesy of Brandon Thurston. And joining us as we go deep into WCW legal mess, it is the one and only David Bixenspan. You know him. You love him from Between the Sheets, Wrestling Inc., all over the place. David, welcome to the show. Well, not Wrestling Inc. anymore. I've been traded to Slash Gear for future consideration. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm not, I'm not up on my, my media transactions of, of late. I'm sorry. I didn't get that on the Yes, uh, I've been shifted around to the tech site within the uh, static media. Uh, Between know. the sheets, a must-listen yes. for, for everyone. So right off the top, uh, Bix, as you, you and Chris Zellner are, are diving into the racial discrimination lawsuit, uh, did you agree with Jeff Jarrett that Bash at the Beach was the biggest black mark in the history of WCW? I don't know how much Jeff was necessarily paying attention to that lawsuit, so I'm going to give him a bit of a pass on that. Yes, it was uh, not one of WCW's shining moment, but I mean, this is a company that had ma- ma- many, many moments that would be up for uh, consideration. So uh, a lot of the focus of uh, why we wanted to have you on today was to talk about the, the lawsuit and the insanity that came out of Bash at the Beach. But um, have you had a chance yet to see the Marty Jannetty episode? Any sort of overall thoughts um, in terms of how Marty was presented and kind of in line with the tone of a lot of the topics this season? Yeah, I watched it as it aired last night. Um I mean, I think the key takeaway I have is the same one that everyone else has, which is that with the story of the killing the guy who was a predator behind the bowling alley, from the way he was telling it, which did not sound like the way he was telling his tall tales throughout the episode, and that he told other people who they talked to decades ago, I don't know if he necessarily killed the guy, but it does seem like he's telling a true story from a real trauma, at least. And they present it like a hypothetical, like the, uh, it's like it's the O.J. Simpson book or something. Yeah. But, th- but then after he does say specifically, when he's saying that he didn't kill a guy, or the guy, he does say outright that the thing in the, the guy groping him in the car happened. He does actually say that specifically. Yeah, when he's denying the rest. Yeah, it sort of had the like I likened it to the same way the Matt Bourne episode ended, where it suddenly became this sort of murder mystery that they focused on. This one, I think, having a bit more uh, 
relevance to people in, in the sense that they're at least aware of the story and going into it. I mean, you can come out of that. And I mean, I don't think anything was said so much in the episode that was this, this smoking gun. I don't think like an investigation is going to come out of yeah. this, but I think you could certainly leave it with the, um, uh, is your possibility that, that he murdered this individual heightened from this episode? I, I can see that. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how people necessarily take this when, I mean, it's just how Marty is presented in this whole episode. It's very easy to also just dismiss it um, with, with everything else, unless you sort of can discern truth from fiction with Marty, which is tough to do sometimes. Yeah. Um, I mean, the takeaway I had, and I think that you guys probably agree with is even if he didn't kill the guy, even if it's not exactly true as he told it, it's informed by something bad that happened to him. It seems like regardless. And I think we can all agree on that. I think so. Like that, that aspect of it, I think you have um, certainly is a bit of a more clear picture um, than how it was originally the the story came out and, and such that was just so focused on, on the murder and not necessarily what, um, what, what led to it uh, behind that bowling alley and such. But um, yeah, it was an episode. I, I don't know what people's opinions are going to be coming out of it. I just, I found it to be a pretty depressing story of an individual who's in great pain and is going to be for the rest of their life and has just th- this clinging to sort of w- what if, like if, if my career had gone right instead of left, I would have been all into fame and fortune. And it's sort of, here is a guy that just, had numerous, numerous obstacles, many of which were put in, that he was responsible for throughout his career. And here at the end of it, it's it's just a sad story of a guy of where he is in life. Yeah, and I also think that the whole murder, whatever story, and then kind of the incident, which I thought they did a good job not like hitting you over the head necessarily with the idea of like, okay, something happened to him. But I feel and but I feel like it also kind of it it did work with the rest of the episode in the sense it's like okay, there, there's some stuff this guy is burying that clearly caused a lot of these issues, it felt like. Brandy, did you have any um, strong thoughts on Marty? I, I guess I didn't realize or didn't remember, I guess, that, that there was such a reconciliation between Sean and, and Marty. And uh, I, th- I thought that was at least nice. I, I thought they were maybe just still to this day, not really on talking terms. But uh, I, didn't, I didn't know about the whole story about, you know, Sean, you know, uh, calling him up and 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 bringing him to the, to this church organization, I guess. And uh, but I guess I, I forgot too that there, that he was brought back to WWE, signed, and then quickly uh, fell into more legal trouble and got let go. Yeah, I think, I think there were a but, pair of those. Cause I, I was looking it up yesterday. The, the number I saw was like eight times he's been in and out of the company. Because was and was the last, that the run where he has the match with Kurt Angle? That's the 2005 one. And then there's, so there's another one run. the next year that is not covered in this. That's in the lead up to Sean and Vince at WrestleMania. And he comes in for, he was going to be in for a role. And then I think it was the same thing where he was under house arrest and couldn't get like a day pass to continue going back each week. And they just, they just washed their hands of Marty at, at this and point. I think, no, I think there was one after that. Cause didn't he get hired as a producer after that? I'm not recalling briefly the or got a tryout or something could have because that yeah. would make it I mean, because that would make it eight then because you have the five in the 80s and 90s and then that would be three. 
Yeah, uh, that, that, w- that would bring you up to eight. He did he did another cameo around one of the anniversary shows at the end of 2007. And maybe that coincided with at least some kind of producer run. But um, yeah. yeah, I don't know if Marty was um, cut out to be a producer. I, w- I would think that would be um, yeah. that would seem like a lot of responsibility on the man's shoulders. But it's I mean, it's just it's an unfortunate story of a guy, a really, really talented individual that for a lot of the audience uh, became a punchline years later, but there's a really tragic story underneath all of this that I hope people don't take away. Just like, like look at this as some kind of like punchline or comedic element. There's a lot of, as you mentioned, Bix, like uh, like trauma that is probably the foundation of this guy's life and uh, went into an industry that he was just uh, chewed up in uh, physically and probably mentally too. And also in terms of the talent, like I'm curious to hear what Brandon thinks of this as a wrestler, like. I feel like even if Shawn Michaels turned into a better worker, I don't think it's a stretch at all to say that at least when they were teaming, Jannetty was more talented. That he was the more more of a physical natural in the ring and was more physically talented than Shawn. Yeah, I don't know if I have a strong opinion on it. When I was a kid, I, I, I liked Marty Jannetty better. Um, but I, I think you know you saw it in the in the Kurt Angle match that he had in the mid two thousands that he still could could work at a, at a pretty strong level. So he's yeah. still if 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 he could you know keep his personal life in, intact, he could have had a, a much better run. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the one other thing I guess before we move on is that, and you know, we know at this point with forty two minutes, there's a lot you have to cut out just to make the runtime. The one thing that I feel like like without getting into the weeds on other topics that would have really enhanced the episode, although I guess he would have had to get in the weeds to do it is. To explain that the one of the big reasons that the whole like you know murder confession blew up was it was not the first time that Marty Jannetty had randomly confessed to felonies online. You know, yeah. so I feel like without that context, it's a little harder to for the viewer to discern. Okay, well, this guy's posting all this obvious bullshit on Facebook all the time. Why did people take this one story seriously? That's why. Because yeah. he had told stories, with at least one of which had been corroborated by multiple people who were there, of doing some very unsavory illegal things. Yeah, and I mean, what was the setup to the like the murder confession is the whole thing with his, like, the, T- the DNA test with his daughter, and he just writes us off, oh, I was hacked. It's not real. And then I don't think any viewer is buying this from Marty. And then you're going into this story where you are, I, I think certainly like your, your version of Marty's credibility is going to be a question when he's just writing off this thing. Well, I was hacked. I was hacked on Facebook as we see the screenshot and this, I can only describe it as Marty Janetti language that it is written in. And you're trying to decipher what is even being written here. Yeah. There are certain people uh, Marty Jannetty is one. I would say, you know, going back to his whole controversy, Rob Feinstein is another, where if someone kept, if they get in posting something online or saying something in the chat with someone online and you see the chat or the post or whatever, you can usually pretty easily discern whether or not they wrote it. They have a very distinct way of writing things online. Well, let's uh, let, let's move from that one over to uh, Bash at the Beach uh, 2000, and we're going to focus a lot on the lawsuit that came out of this that 
I would imagine people knew there was a lawsuit, but I don't think they necessarily are aware of just how long this th- this thing greatly outlived WCW. Uh, this was like one of the remnants of WCW that many years later. In terms of just explaining the story, Bix, how did you feel they they did so on the episode and taking, you know, you had your competing talking heads in Bischoff and Russo and trying to outline this absolutely bizarre story to... I, I just can't imagine a non-fan digesting this and fully understanding it. But did, did you feel they did a, a pretty good job of it? I thought they did do a pretty good job explaining the distinction of what Hogan sued for, what got thrown out, what did, what didn't, what ended up surviving that Hogan probably got the settlement off of. The I mean, the one quibble I would have, I guess, with that part is the how do I put this? Um, I think that was a section where you badly needed a neutral third party on screen as a talking head to sort through it. Because, I mean, you had Russo and Bischoff sniping back and forth. You have Russo talking about this fax from Hogan's old lawyer to WCW. And they have a copy of it and they show it on screen. So it's clearly a real thing. And then they have Eric denying it existed, but it doesn't even seem like Eric is necessarily deliberately lying. It seems like he doesn't remember because I don't think Eric is dumb enough to deny that existed if he knew that there was a copy of it in the lawsuit. Um, and then you have Dave Meltzer being like, I have wiped everything WCW 2000 related out of my brain. I can't help it. There's also a disagreement about whether or not the, the case went to multiple courts. We have, Russo making it sound like oh, there were there were all these different courts and appeals that happened. Yeah, I mean Bischoff that was the truth. No, yeah. Okay, so that so there, this did go to multiple courts. Yes, this did go to appellate courts. I think it twice. So and that again, that's one where it's like I don't like that they left it the way they did because even you know, and they they have Dave established that like, and I'm sure they include that you know for the benefit of the viewer to set up the idea uh, you shouldn't necessarily trust either of these guys. But in that case, like Russo was telling the truth, Eric, again, who with, always with Eric, you never know how much is memory versus bullshit, but that's where it, it screamed out for, I don't know who you would get. I don't know if you would try to get one of the lawyers. I don't know if you would, in this case, maybe someone like Jack Encarnacio, cause he's been over the stuff. So backwards and forwards for uh lap span episodes about bash at, Beach 2000, I felt like you needed a neutral arbiter there to be able to say flatly, this is what happened. Because it's what, not, it's, go ahead. What, what was the appeal about? Was, was it about this issue around whether you can actually defame and whether Russo did defame Hogan because he was, you know, purportedly talking about a character or was he really talking about a real person? Is that what it was about? So I don't think I may be wrong. I was trying to refresh my memory as much as I could before we started. I don't think that made it as far in, in the appeals, the defamation thing. Um, I think that was more about the language of the creative control clause and whether or not it only covered match outcomes or if it also covered all of Hogan's creative. And if I remember right, it was the appellate court initially said, or one court said that it specifically said matches. So it only meant matches. They did what they said, or Hogan said they would do for the actual match with Jarrett. 
So he didn't have a case. And then I believe an appellate court overruled that saying that Russo basically nullified the finish of the match, effectively breaking Hogan's creative control so that Hogan did have a case as far as that. Which is pretty savvy for an appellate court to be able to like decipher like match outcomes versus what what good is a match outcome if you can just override it in a, in a promo afterward. Right, exactly. So, so that, that, go ahead. I was I was more so just it, it's a, it's amazing that you present this to a court and they they had a pretty good grasp on like creative control within a professional wrestling environment more than I would anticipate. Um, a court just looking at this and not just you know throwing this thing out is just totally ludicrous. Yeah, and you know, and there's also just all the other layers just to the story in general, like. You know, that I think you and Wei talked about last week, you know, as far as, um, like, even the timeline as it is in the episode is a little off because, you know, like, you brought it up. It was on the law the night before that mm-hmm. Booker T was going to end the pay-per-view as champion. Yeah, yeah. Dave Meltzer was on the law the night before, and they're openly talking about this. Like, this is the expected outcome, like, Booker T getting the title. And I'm... I was trying to rack my brain. Booker T might have actually been on the show and been asked about this, but I can't a hundred percent recall that. But that that I might think have I was listening live at the time too, but I don't recall. Yeah, I don't have my uh, my, my July two thousand uh, cassette tapes uh, backed up. But yeah, but this is like th- this was being discussed like that weekend, and it wasn't as though it was just like some small thing either. Um, so I mean, there, there's that aspect to it. You've had Dave Penzer who has uh, you know spoken about you know his side of being you know informing. Booker T is such like, hey, get get ready for this on on Sunday and the way this all um, c- comes out. So, I mean, there there's that aspect to it that going into the weekend, it seemed like this was fairly prevalent notion that Booker T is coming out of this weekend as your champion. Yeah, it goes exactly. against this whole tournament idea that Bischoff is the, discussing, which, again, I I looked at this and it was like, man, Bischoff and Russo, like they felt like, man, we had this golden angle and the other guy just ruined it. It was like, if, if only, if only Russo didn't cut this promo, we were off to the races. And then you've got Russo, who's just like, man, we, we had this unbelievable story. Like They believed like this, this was not just salvageable. Like this was just one personality away from, you know, kicking things into high gear here in the summer of 2000. It's like such a divorce from the, the reality of WCW at this time. And their total loss of any kind of cohesion in terms of their online characters and stories. Yeah, plus there are other things I come out of it wondering, like, what... Okay, if we're assuming that they're re- that Hogan and Bischoff had no idea what was coming up later, which I doubt they had no idea. Like, what did they know about... Like, why did they think that it, they weren't going on last? Like, why... You know, if... You know, if that's... What the did they think was going to close the pay-per-view, if, if not that? Yeah, did they think it was going to be Nash and Goldberg? Like... Did, you know, Hogan and Bischoff know about having the other title belt there? Because uh, I don't think they talked about it in the episode, but one of the things that happened is this is shortly after they had the big gold belt cast and made copies that they gave to, I think, I think it was every former champion that they had under contract at the time. And they had been using one of the copies a little bit. Jarrett comes out for the Hogan match with one of the copies 
And, you know, then Russo cuts his promo about how that's not the WCW championship. That's the Hulk Hogan belt. And then Jarrett comes out with the original belt with the, you know, the visible bend in the middle for the main event with Booker. So, like, who knew that they had the two belts? Who was told to make sure they had the two belts? Um, I don't know. It's like, there's clearly something, there's really something missing. And it's like, part of the problem is too, is even if they're not trying to work you, Bischoff and Hogan as well, even though he's not in the episode, they both have terrible memories. Like, they are huge workers, but they both also have genuinely terrible memories. So... How about Jarrett in in the episode? Like he he certainly comes across easily like the the most credible of the the principal yes. figures. Did you feel he was? Did you get a sense at all? Was he holding back? Did you feel he was pretty forthright in terms of his contributions? Um, because he he's the one that I think people are going to take the most serious uh, in this whole thing. And you know he really paints Hogan the most negative of the bunch. Yeah, um, yeah, I thought he came off very credibly. Um, I thought the most interesting part was, you know, what watching it felt like one of the biggest works of the whole thing, the, you know, delayed Jared entrance, he's saying, and he, I don't think he has any reason to lie here. He's saying that was him genuinely not being sure he wanted to go out to them for the match. You know, it comes off like it's part of the angle. You know, it didn't detract from what they were planning. But I found that really interesting that he was just like he and knowing the way that he thinks about his storylines, I think it tracks too that he's telling the truth about that because he's talking about like the idea, even as a heel, that he's going out there and laying down and thinking about in an old school way how much that could hurt him. Um like it makes me think about like when he quit WWF five years earlier, where, you know, I think with some counseling from his dad, he came to realize, and I think rightfully so, with the whole storyline of where Road Dog was going to be the one who it turned out had, you know, really sung with my baby tonight, and it was supposed to be exposed at that July 95 in your house where he lost the Intercontinental title to Michaels, and they did the lip syncing performance and all that. And then they quit in the middle of the show after the match. Jarrett's rationale was like, well, wait a second. The angle here is Rhodey exposes that he really sang the song and I didn't. Okay, I'm immediately a fraud. He's immediately given me my comeuppance. What's the story here? Where do I go from there? How is there anywhere for me to go but down? So knowing that he has that very analytical way of thinking about how he's presented, to me, that totally tracks that that was his thought process at Passion Beach. It's also not even brought up in the, and I understand like the, the time constraints and stuff, but the fact that like they had just done this angle, like not all that long ago in October with, with Hogan, like the other. Yes, with Hogan State. Like they had literally just done this. It's not as though this was even some novel idea that they had come up with that was, you know, breaking with uh, convention, breaking the fourth wall on television. Um, and was Russo so, there at that time? I, I remember that, that was happened. Russo's, I mean, that was basically Russo's first night in the company, wasn't it? He did. I think he did, he did the pay per view before the TV. I think. I think. I think they were supposed to start 
on the night after Havoc, and they pushed it up a week. So he might have done Nitro, but it's it's absolutely his first pay-per-view. So it's his yes. first, if not second show, and they're shooting this angle immediately. So th- that was, um, yeah, th- that's essentially the, the construction of the, the entire idea going into it. Now, when – the, the suit is filed, like, pretty quickly after by – by Hogan, right? And this is yes. for breach, breach of contract and defamation of character is what he's alleging. Yes. And at what point is, are, are they making the ruling on, like the, like, the defamation part, that is kind of where he gets the pushback from, but continues onwards. And for years, it's the breach of contract that is sort of the, the crux of the suit? Yes, both in terms of the creative control, but also... To a degree, as far as uh, like pay-per-view bonus payments that he was not paid that he should have been because he's supposed to be guaranteed those, I think, regardless of if he appears on the pay-per-view. Or no, he technically is supposed to be getting them as advances. And after Bash at the Beach, he wasn't. Um, I'm trying to remember, did they countersuit? Because they tried to ask him to appear at Greed at the final pay-per-view. Mm-hmm. And he said no. And I think that was probably just a legal strategy, but uh, okay, I forget. Had they been sold to W? Had they made the deal with WWF yet? By the time Greed happened, it has. That's like March eighteenth. I don't think the. I don't think it's finalized. At, no, at, or I don't think. Well, no, it wasn't finalized till after WrestleMania. But I, I mean, it's not like it's it's nine days before the simulcast. So I don't think. That, no, that's right. It was the Wednesday or the Thursday before the simulcast. That, was, that, that's what I'm thinking. Was yeah. when it was was when it yes. was announced. Yes. So yeah, but still, like, and one of the things I found interesting when I was reading through everything to try to you know jog my memory before you know doing this show with you guys that I found really interesting was in Brad Siegel's deposition, he explains that deferring paying Hogan had nothing to do with the lawsuit or anything. He says it was all about the losses and that they did not have, and like when they would have to record paying Hogan the pay-per-view bonuses and keeping those off of WCW's books until 2001, which is really interesting for this reason. If you look at the WCW pay data, his payroll is all under what he would have been guaranteed for pay-per-views. The assumption I had made, and I think that others had looked through the data and made, was that, okay, we always heard about the Turner home entertainment involvement and maybe Hogan having part of his contract come from there. Maybe the pay-per-view stuff was not on WCW's books. But now we have Brad Siegel saying under oath that it was. So that's just another angle where who knows really what, money WCW actually made and lost over the years because the accounting was just so creative. And so Hogan's deal, it's, is it through May of 2002? That's when the 98 contract runs until for Hogan. Yes. Okay. And he gets some kind of buyout like a few months prior so that he can go to WWF. Uh, yes. Yes. Okay. So, because just just doing the timeline here, so WCW ends March of '01. Hogan goes to the. I don't know if he signs in January, but he he appears in February of 2002. Uh, but this suit, like it, continues to drag uh, for, for years at this point and goes until 2005. And 
Like that's the other part. Like at the end of this whole thing, Russo and Bischoff can't even agree on how this thing ended. Like if there was a settlement, if it was thrown out, like you as the viewer, like if you're not watching this with any kind of supplementary research or information, like you're left just not even knowing how this case ends. Like you don't even have these two being able to agree on how this thing ended. If there was a settlement, if it was thrown out by a judge. And again, maybe some of that you give some leeway on memory, but that to me is a pretty significant part of the story of like, how did this thing end? Ah, could have been a settlement, could have been just thrown out. I mean, from Russo's perspective, I guess it's that it was thrown out because once the defamation is out of the picture, it's, I don't think he's even a party to the lawsuit anymore. Then it just, WCW on the hook essentially for the, the aspect of the breach of contract. Right. I think the settlement was July, 2005. So five years. July of 2005. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not the old timer, which is, I think there might, I'm trying to remember exactly why I dragged out for so long, but the whole, the Billy Eady, Randy Colley lawsuit against WWF over the demolition gimmick, that ran for like a decade total. Like that, I believe is the record holder, so to speak. No, the, the Kung Lee suit, they're, they're, they're in hot pursuit of that one then. That's yeah, the they're at almost nine years, I believe. I, I came away from it with it sounding to me like somebody says uh, Hogan got a, a seven figure settlement. Uh, yes. It was another way to, to get more, more money. Okay. And is that true? I mean, we don't know. It's not like it was right. He he refers to it number. as like he didn't tell me the number, but that's what he believed. Okay, yeah, yeah. That that's what Eric says. Yeah, which is a great headline. That's what Eric says. <laughs> Hogan and Bishop. Could you imagine Hogan on this episode? Like, I know he's an absent voice, but I don't know if just it would have just been just the carnival with Hogan uh, thrown into all of this. The people that probably would have been because at this time you're your creative team, I guess you're looking at like Ed Ferrara is still in the mix. Is Bob Mould in the company at this point, I think? Um, Bob Mould, I believe, quit when Russo was brought back. Okay, so then he's he's gone at, at, at this point. Yeah, because I was trying to like just – like who are the people that are even uh, in the room with Russo at, at this point? Even ones that – I mean how attached would they have even been to the – the specifics of this, if this were sort of a Hogan or a, a Bischoff Russo, you know, negotiation as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think Terry Taylor was on the committee at the time in some form. So yeah, I think it's some mix of like Russo, Ferrara, Terry Taylor. You know, there are other people that are just kind of in the room, like, but not really necessarily having power, like Randy Anderson. Um, so it's a mix. Uh, one other thing, like, and I get why they didn't go into this in the episode, because I think there's only one person who's actually said it under oath, and it would have been a whole can of worms, is that there's also the whole issue of, you know, the testimony in the racial discrimination lawsuit alleging that the Booker T idea was specifically to try to quell the racial discrimination lawsuit. Right. Which... Yes. Again, it is a whole nother can of worms that they would not have had time to discuss in any uh, in the way it would deserve in the episode. Yeah, they've got season five to think about as well. I think I think WCW is a well they can continue to go to for for seasons to come if if, if the show is renewed. I guess the the final thing, and then um, we'll go on to a lighter topic, which is uh, how many people attended WrestleMania three. But um, in terms of Russo's pivot like leaving wcw how does this case play a role in his ability to go 
to TNA. Like that was always like, it had to be under lock and key that this guy was working with TNA during their early days. Like was this, um, like what would have occurred for Russo to make that move? And was this a stumbling block at any point for him? So the way it was reported at the time in the observer, and I think also the torch was that uh, time Warner was paying Russo's legal bills for both that lawsuit and I guess potentially the racial discrimination lawsuit if he were to be added to it, which just for the record, he was never a party to the lawsuit. He's never named personally in the, and I should say lawsuits because it's technically like a dozen, but with overlapping discovery and stuff. Um, And their stipulation though, was that because they're paying for his legal fees and I think also still paying him some income because he had a pay or play contract was to was that he couldn't work for any other wrestling companies even though at that point they're not in competition with time warner for whatever reason they put that restriction down um so his early tna consulting was secret the work he did for world wrestling all-stars before that Mm -hmm. was secret and then kind of handed over to jeremy borash and then it's it's right as TNA is launching that Russo gets this WWE offer. And Russo, I guess, I don't know if it's because of the money or because of just the name value WWE carried or being the ones who bought WCW's assets or whatever. He's able to convince Warner to let him take a wrestling job because of that. He gets fired, what was it, like, after two, three weeks? I think it was like two or three days in WWE. I mean, I think he was actually there for a few days and then maybe officially fired a little after that. Okay. but What what year would this be by then? Oh, two. Oh, two. Okay. And then uh, Warner had already opened that door, so they weren't going to stop him from going anywhere else, and then he officially goes to TNA. Fascinating. Just, uh, Just fascinating. Well, on uh, on that note, we uh, we also want to talk with you uh, because a couple of years ago on Deadspin, you did a pretty extensive dive into the the grand mystery of WrestleMania 3's attendance at the Pontiac Silverdome in March of 1987. And it's, uh, again, a very relevant talking point as we get set for All In because there's nothing better than an attendance controversy that has an AEW tie-in that Brandon has just been greatly <laughs> waiting for his, his mentions to uh, point out to him. So, Brandon, what is, what is the latest number that we have roughly for All In? For All In, I think I have it up on my screen here. So the WrestleTix has a daily tracker, and the latest number, I'm scrolling and scrolling to, to, to is this today? Yesterday? This is as of yesterday. Distributed is 78,000. 773 uh estimated paid is 73,372 so around 73,000 estimated paid around just under 79,000 estimated distributed so we we are pretty much right in the ballpark of where um you know the you know for for a long time has been thought to be the 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 attendance that Dave Meltzer has reported through uh both his uh the internal records he was provided by WWF around 20 22 years ago and through the the building certificate from uh Zane Bresloff who was the uh promoter with WWF at the time so this many years later uh, Bix, since you wrote that piece i mean do you feel that you have a, a clear understanding of the attendance figures at, at 
the Silver Dome and I mean, you just you did an exhaustive amount of research. I just reread the article uh, the, this morning and in a, I, I was very tempted. Someone's got to do that head count at some point. There is a high res shot that Bix includes in, in the article as well. If, if you are so uh, curious as to go do the head count, which I'm surprised someone hasn't done. I, I don't know that you can actually I've looked at it and, and, and I think I'm looking at the most high resolution version of it. I don't think yeah. you can actually distinguish people. Something that I was considering doing, and I started like one sixth of the work on it, is there's, and this is assuming that there hadn't been drastic changes in the stands between when when the building was destroyed and when and, and when WrestleMania three happened in 1987, is that there there are some really nice high resolution photos of the empty stands just before it's demolished, and uh, and I think and maybe you could count all the seats that way. I think a lot of this d- debate. I hope I'm not jumping ahead, but a lot of this debate hinges on what the real football capacity was for, for yeah. the Silver Dome, and whether or not the the supposed capacity of eight, I believe eighty thousand three hundred something like that, uh, whether whether that's the real capacity or whether that's exaggerated as well. Okay, so okay, so first things first, I should know too, and I'll I'll send John the link so we can put it in the notes and so I I did do a follow up on my Substack a couple years ago when I found some more information that got us a little further. Um, and kind of to where my conclusion is now, which I think Brandon agrees with. So there are a bunch of elements in here. So the big one that's always kind of confused people is – thank you for putting that up there. Um, no better so, headlines in the business. <laughs> the Okay, so your announced attendance is 93,173. The Meltzer number that he got from Zane Bresloff in later WWE and – Lately, Dave's said other places too, including the Athletic Commission, which he never said anything about until people were arguing with him online in the last year or so, uh, that they all had roughly 78,500. And I forget the number of comps. Um, but the Silver Dome's football capacity, so basically all of your fixed seats, was, I don't forget which was when, because there was a remodeling, and I forget which was the bigger number and which was the smaller number. But I want to say it's like 80,600 at the time of Mania 3, and then by the time the Silver Dome is demolished, it was around 80,300. So what we're showing on the screen right now is a photo of my personal copy of the 1992 NFL record book that shows the capacity for all NFL stadiums. So 1992, not 1987, but it is listed as 80,500 for the Pontiac Silver Dome. Right. And then on the field at Mania 3, and, uh, you know, wrestling historian Max Levy has counted from the high-res photo, he was able to ballpark, and this seems about right, about something in the neighborhood of 6,300 fans on the floor. So that then takes you to there being, like, a little over 72,000 in the stands. So the question becomes, is the capacity worked? Which feels like a distinct question from... Our attendance is being worked, in particular because, you know, particularly in the 80s, the NFL had these local blackout rules Mm -hmm. in some markets, I think. But Detroit was one of them where I forget if it was if a game didn't sell out or if a game specifically was under a certain capacity. I think it was just didn't sell out. Yeah, you could not watch a Lions game for this reason in, in my area. Yeah, you couldn't watch a Lions game on local TV. It would not be aired. Or if it was on a national outlet, it would be blacked out locally. And so everyone knows in Detroit, 
that the Pontiac Silverdome's capacity is whatever was 80,000, what, 611, something like that. So there becomes this question of like, would they have really worked that? And, you know, like, uh, and I had tried, uh, forget if this is in the Deadspin article or the follow-up. I had tried, you know, talking to the city of Pontiac because it was a publicly owned building and whether it's just straight up certificate of occupancy from the department of buildings or more specific stuff about the silver dome from the city owned thing that ran the silver dome, the records are, excuse me, the records are basically all gone because they had a financial crisis years ago and they had a emergency financial manager take over all the finances for the city and he never returned the records for some reason. And I remember when I reached out to records officer, they seemed very frustrated that these records had never been returned. So in terms of getting anything like official, official government level, it doesn't look like it's going to happen. You know, I mentioned in the uh, Deadspin article, I did a FOIA request with the Secret Service because it's reported in the, uh, I think the Detroit News or one of the Detroit papers right before Mania 3 that the Secret Service would be attending Mania 3 to do security planning for the Pope's Mass at the Silverdome later that year. So that also to me suggests that we're talking about two crowds of roughly the same size. If they feel like that's not something they could do by plan, you know what I mean? If they were, mm-hmm. if they could do it at a Lions game, they would have done it at a Lions game, but they're not. So, and, go ahead. And, and, and to be be clear, so if let, let's assume for the moment that that let's let's say that eighty thousand six hundred five hundred whatever it is for the football capacity, if that were legitimate, um, and we we're looking at a photo here, looks like it's it's pretty full. Is there, is there any reason to doubt that all the tickets for WrestleMania three that could have been sold? Is there any reason to doubt that it's not like a legitimate sellout? And and, and we don't have part we, part of what we have here that we that we have today uh, is there's no production kills really right? There's no giant no. stage like there would be today. The the whole stadium it looks like is being used in addition to what's on the field. But it, is there any reason to think that well there maybe there were some tickets that just weren't sold that that don't even allow us to get up to that capacity? Okay. It's a legitimate sellout. We know that for sure. The local papers were telling people it is a sellout. You cannot get tickets a few days out. It's a WWF show. They are not going to announce locally like that that it's sold out if it wasn't sold out. Although, okay, I, I, I tell a lie because then a few years later for SummerSlam 92, for some reason they run the TV spot saying that Wembley Stadium is sold out for SummerSlam even though it wasn't. For some reason, that wasn't only for for non UK consumption. Who knows why? So they uh, there is one time they did something like that, but still, I mean, realistically, they this was sold out. And there's other so there's other complicating factors with that too. So this was something I had no idea about until I wrote the Deadspin article. Um, but it makes sense unless you read the that those local newspaper stories, you don't know it's sold out. And it's wrestling in 1987, so there are a lot of people that are driving to the Silverdome thing. They can walk up and buy tickets. So, and I should add, too, like the local WWF TV show would not have been sent out to the local market. And to, I, mean, well, I should rephrase that. It was sent out before the sellout. So, for the most part, a lot of people that wanted to go but didn't have tickets yet probably thought they could get tickets. 
And as I learned from both a Deadspin commenter and also uh, then WWF photographer Tom Buchanan, great Facebook follow, by the way. Yes. Um, they realized, like, oh, God, we could have an issue here. There are thousands of people here without tickets. Let's let them in and hang out. Like, they won't just want to be here. Let's let them in and ha- they hang out around the concourse and in the bathrooms and stuff. Tom Buchanan told me he thinks he has pictures. He, I mean, he knows he took pictures of it. Um, I think he wasn't sure if they were pictures he would have still had or if WWF did. Um, so there's potentially it, more people in the stadium, more fans who paid yes. for entrance who th- than there were seats. Right. And it sounded like it could even be a few thousand. So there's that too. And then if we're doing the McMath on all this, in terms of arena staff and WWF personnel and everything, there was a good another 3,000 people in the building. I think more. I think it was like 3,200 at least. So I mean, we're, we're talking about that. That's the announced number, which yes, as far as getting is. to the ninety three one seventy three, yes. So another factor in all this, going into the show, the number you see everywhere in the media, pretty much everywhere until the last couple of days is eighty eight thousand. Mm-hmm. Everywhere in the Observer, in local newspapers. And then what became most interesting to me and what really kicked off me looking up more and doing that follow-up on my Substack, a WWF press release when they crossed 80,000 about a week out, excuse me, 88,000 about a week out. Here's what I found interesting about that. There's no follow-up press release after Mania to say, oh, we did even better. It's 93,173. So, yeah, it's a time where Titan Sports is a private company. But to me, that kind of read and still reads like saying that 88,000 is really the legit number. You know, that 93,000 is the entertainment number, but we're putting out this press release because this is a legit, you know, huge, you know, maybe record number. So there's that too. And then one of the weirdest things about all this, the I want to say it was the last advance that Meltzer reported in The Observer, I think maybe two, three weeks out, it's in the Deadspin article, was 78,500, a.k.a. the number he reports as the total attendance now. I don't know what that means, but I don't feel like it can be a coincidence. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that, and I feel like I'm forgetting one or two things before we really get deeper. But it just... So, oh, okay, now I remember. Despite the sellouts, though, there are there are fan photos you can find, and there are moments watching the show... Where you can see that there are a lot of empty seats in the upper deck. Are those mass bathroom breaks? Are those people who didn't arrive yet? Are those unsold scalper tickets? Hard to know and hard to get a good count for how many. But we also know there are then thousands more people coming, maybe thousands, still a large number of non-ticketed standing room fans in the building, too. So it's hard to figure out the balance there. But anyway... So as far as 88,000 and the other reasons why that seems like that could be a legit number. Let me throw out this hypothetical. I'll throw it out to both of you, but starting with Brandon, okay? So all incomes and let's say the real number that they end up, they end up, let's just throw out 82,000, okay, is the number they get in Wembley. And 
AEW puts out a press release and it's suddenly on that Monday morning, you go to uh, whatever your so, some big trade picks this up and it is promoted as the largest attendance in pro wrestling history is how AEW trumpets this big number. Is there any response from WWE to either cite um, this show uh, to use the WrestleMania 32 number? Do you expect any kind of a response? I'll start with you, Brandon, in terms of WWE disputing if it is a big like national like sports media covering this, the largest pro wrestling attendance ever that AEW tries to hang its hat on coming out of this event. It would have to be really big. I, I think they try not to publicly respond to AEW and to pretend that AEW doesn't exist. Um, I'm trying to think what, what are the occasions where they've really addressed AEW specifically. Um, the first know, week of Dynamite, they responded right. to the number, right? Marathon, not a sprint. Um, and, and Nick Khan's made some comments that you know really downplay their existence. You know, blinders and all that. Um, Never met the kid. Never met them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> seems like a good kid. Um, I, I, I don't think so. Unless it becomes a really, really big story, but I don't think so. Um, and there's, there's WrestleMania 32 to, to think about too. I mean, obviously they've announced an even bigger number. That, that's the one. If they're going to point to a record, they, they claim that they broke their record uh, of, of WrestleMania 3 at WrestleMania 32 with 101,763. Um, I don't think they did though. But I don't, I don't know if we want to jump that far ahead here. Um, I, I think so, so for else. context, the WrestleMania 32 number is like it's announced publicly as like 101 and change 763, yeah, 763. And then Brandon, you got the, the turnstile count of 80,702, I think 709, 709. <laughs> yes. Don't want to offset those, those seven <laughs> individuals, right? And there are also people who point out though that there were a lot of ticket scanning issues and stuff. At that show. Okay, but the paid, and I, and I, I think if w- what we're really the core of what what the, this conversation will be about is like how how successful was this event, yeah. and that that's not determined so much as how many fans were in the building, but how many people paid for tickets, right. and we we know from the key performance indicators and the math that you can do around it. There's a huge huge rainstorm happening here. I hope you can't hear that, but that that you know the key performance indicators indicate that. Uh, because of the averages with and without WrestleMania, you kind of do the math, and it looks like the attendant, the paid attendance for WrestleMania 32 in 2016 at AT&T Stadium is around 80,000. Um, so even if there were ticket scanning issues, even if a lot of people got in without their tickets being scanned, um, it looks like the paid attendance, people who bought tickets for WrestleMania 32, is around 80,000. Maybe that includes, maybe that doesn't include suites though. And I know AT&T Stadium's got some big suites, so I, I can't dismiss that part. Yeah, and I'm trying to remember what's the comp number. Okay, it's 2,300 comps is the number for Mania 3, roughly, for what it's yeah. worth. And we know that is the that is the number regardless of what the actual attendance is, right? Because I believe Meltzer was told it at the time. He was told 2,300 comps. You do the math, something like that. So, so and, that would, as you put it in your article, 85,000 paid for WrestleMania 3. If it was 88,000, yes. Right. So right. here's where we get to how it seems like 88,000 is the real number. Later days of the Silverdome where, you know, there's no permanent tenant. There's no more Detroit Lions playing there. They're playing at Ford Field, etc. They have a website, silverdome.com, that really just exists to drive rental business to the stadium. Keep that in mind. Um, 
they do tout, they do give the 93-173 for Mania in, in like a trivia section. And they also give a completely new, presumably made up number for the Pope that was higher. Um, at the time and like in subsequent years, you'd hear like from Dave Meltzer and Brian Alvarez that like they listed the 78,500 originally and then wrestling fans harangued them. So they changed it, but they knew the Pope did more. So they made up a new Pope number and that Pope number, like the, I forget what it was. It's oh, it's like a little bit more in like 93 and change. You cannot find any trace of that until this website. Um, but there's no trace on the Wayback Machine on an internet archive of there ever having been the smaller number on the website. And based on when the snapshots are on the Wayback Machine, if it had ever been there, it was only for a few weeks. It wasn't years like people had said before. Um Okay, if you Google yes. it, we have we have the, the Pope attendance just after WrestleMania three in nineteen eighty seven is ninety three thousand six hundred and eighty two. Yeah. Right. I'm sure this is just as debated amongst uh, the the Catholic <laughs> yes. Church followers that yes. uh, always bring this number up. I mean, I reached out to the archdiocese and they didn't have anything. I really did. <laughs> I just want that quote to live in infamy. I reached out to the archdiocese. David Dixon's fan, the best. <laughs> so, so here's the thing, though. On that silverdome.com, they broke down the attendance by section of the building and types of seats. And where it gets interesting, you take out the suites, you take out the club level seats. All of a sudden, the Meltzer, Bresloff, etc. number makes sense. I've, yeah. I could pull up the exact number, but it's like it's in the 72,000. Or, well, no, 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 wait, 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 the, yeah, it would be in the 72,000 range. You add in the floor seats, you add in the club and suites, and all of a sudden you're at roughly 88,000. And I have talked to someone who sees building settlements these days that Brandon may or may not also know. And they've told me, oh, yeah, those oftentimes don't have, like, the suites and stuff. So, I mean, I, I can say I've seen ticketing, ticketing audits, and, I, and you know, we discussed the, um, in the in the case of WrestleMania in Tampa, the one with the, the half capacity. We we saw those ticket audits that we got through public records requests through through the Tampa Sports Authority, right. and yeah. we saw that there there were separate uh, ticketing audits, separate gate receipts in essence for the the suites versus the standard seats of the stadium. Right, and not knowing specifics about the stadium, there's also the possibility they're not going through the same turnstiles too. Yes. You know, like I think about the one time I went to a, I went to a show at a suite at Madison Square Garden. We did not go through the main ticketing area. There's an there was an area off to the side at the main entrance. You go up an escalator towards the suites. Mm-hmm. So it it stands to reason that that was not in there. Now, where this gets tricky is like obviously you would think Zane Bresloff would know that. In sending the stuff to Dave and saying, like, oh, no, the number's really this, that's the part I have trouble reconciling. But, like, you look yeah, at everything. People don't know. Zane Bresloff is, is the WCW, former WCW and WF live events executive who, who Dave attributes this information to. I mean, he, he was the local promoter of WrestleMania 3. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and passed away 20 years ago, yeah. uh, for yes. those curious. Yeah. I mean, Let's, you know, I talked to Steve Harms, who worked for him. For the Deadspin article, and 
what was it? He, I think he says he, he thinks the 78,500 is a legit number, but he's not sure it's the entire number. Let me see. Um, but you take, you do the fact that the math works out so well. And they were everyone, including the Silverdome, was saying 88,000, 88,000 um, going into the show. That feels to me like it's right. And then the thing is, too, you throw in, to do the WWF math, you throw in those standing room fans, you throw in the personnel, you can get up to, to roughly 93,000. The security outside. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so here's what Steve Harms told me. It was um, about a week before the event. Zane mentioned to me that they could probably sell ninety thousand tickets. They wanted the Silver Dome to look full for TV, so it was time to ramp up the comp tickets, and that's what they did. I don't know or remember how many comps were out there by the event date. Um, he knows former WWE employees who agree with the smaller number being the real one. He's also not sure if the total number of people in the build, if that's the total number of the build, people in the building, or just number of tickets sold. Does that number include comps? Probably not. I'm quite sure there weren't 93,000 people there, or 90,000 for that matter, at the event. So, so that's that would, what he said. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing all this in my, in, in my head as, as, we, as we speak here. Um, I, I guess it, <laughs> we absolutely do. And uh, just to be clear, by the way, like Brandon and I have talked about this, and he cited like Brandon, I think, is in agreement with me that the roughly 88,000 88, ticketed fans appears to be the real number yeah uh, uh, what would change my opinion is if somebody could could show that the football capacity really was not yeah. eighty thousand, of course 500 yeah 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 of course but they're not lying about the capacity you know and it was only a few hundred seats difference in 2003 or whenever it was that they had the website they're not lying about how many seats they have down to the section when they're just renting the building for high school graduations and stuff. This is an advertising tool. They need to have the actual number of seats there. So, and, 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 oh, for like, you know, events with stuff on the field, like political rallies and religious events, whatever, it did list the capacity as something like, I think, 90,000. You know, what, what would the attendance exact. have been if there was a Trump rally at the Pontiac Silverdome in one of the last elections? Then, then we the actual more, attendance more than or, or what he would say it was? <laughs> what he would say, of course. <laughs> oh, he, he would say 150,000. There you have it. He would have, he would have all the attendance records. Ford Field, Pontiac, Silverdome, he'd have them, them all covered. I guess as as we look at um, present day, Brandon, like when it comes to um, like what, what Polestar reports and such, like our, our suites and that such, like is that all uh, figured into the numbers we see on something like Polestar? Does it differ by venue like what is your kind of read on like i would have to look at at what i got from the the city of san antonio if that included suites um i would have to look i think it might might vary i I don't assume when i when i look at those numbers like say the pole star numbers i don't assume that that includes suites because i don't i think in a lot of stadiums and somebody who knows more about these venues could could correct us but i think a lot a lot of cases there are you know uh people who hold access to to those suites for the entire season or maybe for all events in, in the venue. It's um, pretty much that. I mean, I can tell you when I went to SummerSlam 98, because my dad had a friend at CBS who had spare tickets. It was, they held the suite year round. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then that comes to the question, like, what are we monitoring here? Are we monitoring just physical bodies inside a building for an event? Or are we trying to get a gauge of what 
level of popularity this inter- this event is generating and we specifically tie that to people physically purchasing tickets to go to an event because they are drawn to it and if you are someone that like you know you have a suite it's like it's well you're interested in going to see this event but it's also something that you're you're not spending any additional money to see this event so what 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 are you weighing with that with those added numbers and we can sometimes just get lost in like the volume number that wwe certainly put such a high premium on but look what does that number mean right i think it's you just got to go with both um Something I do want to mention, too, I almost forgot, as far as, you know, the standing room, we need to keep in mind, too, that, like, we there's a confirmed time where they let a ton of extra standing room people into set a building record. You know, WrestleMania 18 in Toronto. They let a ton of, I forget if they charged or not, John, you were there, you'd probably know better. Um, but they let, like, thousands of more extra people in there so they could claim a fairly legit silver dome not silver dome uh, sky dome record well i definitely didn't get him for free i can confirm that <laughs> aspect of things but um you know it was like i would not be you know certainly once like once the show is starting and you just want to like fill people in like there's plenty of you know room that you can accommodate you know standing room um for, for a lot of the, the, these buildings that you're talking about that again you can certainly look at like a number and then if you are able to filter in more to just load up that number. And they're also basically undocumented. It's like, you can't even necessarily uh, dispute it. If you want to throw some number out and like, we're talking about the silver dome now of like the potential of people just getting in at the end. Yeah. Now I have a question for Brandon though, for mania 32, do we have any indication of how fans with tickets in like the, party area of AT&T Stadium, like the places that are, you are buying tickets to be in the building for the event, but you're not actually in the bowl or the suites watching the show. Do we have any idea how those would be counted? All, all I have is an email from Arlington Police Department saying the turnstile count was 80,709. I think I did follow up with them about a year later to ask them if they had any details about whether or not that included suites. They didn't know. Um, don't you have the the bid book and and some information about about that year's WrestleMania? Mm, the bid book I have. Well, no, no, no. I, the bid book I have came later. What I have, I have like all of the Arlington like audits, da- like of every dollar they spent for that mania. Um, okay. But, but I don't have anything to do with the stadium activities. No, no. When I checked, uh, you know, fun side note to that. Brandon knows the story. I don't think John does. So when I was doing all that research, you know, to try to get, you know, mainly a host city stuff for what ended up being a Mel Magazine article about the whole, you know, how much money are these cities spending, et cetera. One of the things I did was, you know, what? OK, let me do a record request with the Arlington police to be like, hey, here's this article from this Brandon Thurston saying he emailed you and you sent him this number could you send me what you use to arrive at that number? They presumably they would, they would know this because of security reasons, I guess you want to know how many people are in the area so that you know what you're something. Yeah. And their responsive document was the email exchange with you, including your cell phone number that they did not take. Out. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, Vix already has my number. Uh, yeah. To serve and protect. Wow, that's that's great. Here in, here in an open carry state, here's a here's a random person's phone number. I mean, I don't know. It, 
Boy, would you be interested to learn how many court records I've gotten that have people's social security numbers in them. Guys, look out. Okay, David Bixit's fans got the magnifying glass out, so be, <laughs> be, be careful out there. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. <laughs> well, um, you know, we can kind of just, uh, you know, let, let's put a, a bow on this just in terms of like the, the focus of why this topic is coming up. And that is all in and just sort of some of your thoughts, Bix, on what this number represents for AEW, because it's really interesting that they are going to like by leaps and bounds have their biggest show to date. And yet I don't think it's anyone's tying this to some kind of popularity peak. And if anything, it's a bit of a, a dip for AEW when we look at how they're drawing domestically. But what would you assess is just like the health of the company going into all in and how you feel this show is going to be viewed in, in company history. Like it is a, it's a gigantic feat for them. I feel like we're not going to have a good feel for it until we're week of, Mm -hmm. because we're, it's gotten better this last week, but we're still in that. We're, it was only a week ago that there was still nothing announced for the show, you know? And I think we're still so close to that that it still kind of feels underhyped in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so, because also, I mean, they weren't really mentioning it on TV either until last week, which was a whole other, to the point that Punk in a very Made a crack about way, it. yeah, it was like this basically joked a collision that like, yeah, like what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> but, um, like it feels as as we're several weeks out that it's the like the venue and the crowd is as much of a draw as anything else on this show. I would say it's it's the leading factor that if this show is going to do above your normal range of an AEW pay per view, it's all because of you know attaching like this is a historically significant show and and I I think that is going to hit that that week for people and once you have a full card like the card will be. It'll be a very good card on paper. I think everyone expects it to be. Um, but Brandon, do you kind of lean on that? That in terms of, you know, we've seen AEW, like attaching something as historically significant, that does make a meaningful difference. I think it will for this one, but the idea of them like doubling, like what they do on a normal pay-per-view, like I think that's probably an unrealistic uh, goal here. Like, I don't know how this is going to do on pay-per-view. Yeah, especially with the, the fact that they're going to be doing another pay-per-view the very next week, asking fans to pay $50 on one sort of Sunday, Saturday, whatever it is. And then, then seven days later again, mm-hmm. um, on a WWE John, weekend too, that, yeah, that it's, Labor Day weekend. But yeah, yeah, John, I, I, do you want to give a Nord VPN plug while we're here? <laughs> we might need yeah, on, on a side note for those that are in, in Canada, the, uh, the TSN plus free trial ends today and that's people's uh, ability to watch collision and rampage. So I think, NordVPN might be getting a lot of business from Canadians. Oh, yeah. oh, wait. TSN Plus is not just part of your cable subscription if you have to. So that is what I'm trying to find out today. 
is if my cable subscription gives me access to TSN Plus, the streaming service. I'm led to believe no, but I don't know that 100% yet. I've asked TSN, and we will see. If I don't get an answer, then that's probably my answer. How many years had this been a free trial, Then I'm very confused. This thing launched around the end of last year, early this year. It's just been months of this streaming service that you've just had automatic access into. And if you don't have TSN on cable, like this thing is... $8 $8 a month. And I just, I, I can't fathom wrestling fans. If you're only watching it for rampage and collision um, spending like that, that will drastically impact their, their Canadian fan base. So it only includes the stuff that is not on linear TSN. Yes. Yes. Okay. So it's like ESPN plus in that sense. I mean, well, it's the same company, right? So um, yeah, they, they have a, a percentage of TSN anyway, but um a separate topic there, but yes, the the VPN services are going to be in in full effect. I think over this next month or so. But, yeah, but I think this is oh, good. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, I was gonna say, I was gonna say, like, I am curious. I think fight business you can't really gauge because it's going to do better in the UK anyway. There's more interest, etc. There's more promotion, so I don't think you can try really try to gauge or more people using VPNs or anything based on that. I am curious to see if maybe between afternoon and depending on how many people you're going with potentially price, I am curious if movie theater business is up. Yeah. I, I think it's it's incumbent on AEW to make this a really great show and put on a, a, a strong card. I mean, usually usually their their pay per views deliver. Even you know, I, I I think of the first Forbidden Door and you know, feeling it was kind of a lackluster card going in and it turned out to be a a really strong card. Um, but this is a really big opportunity for AEW to create not just, you know, another pay-per-view brand, but this could potentially turn into a WrestleMania brand and draw them tens of millions of dollars every year if it if it comes off really well and if they continue to run a stadium show a year under this all-in brand, which it makes sense to do so given the history of all-in in, in 2018 of being, you know, the precursor to this company existing. Um so it's, it's, I don't think this is just, you know, let's put on a house show here. We've already got, you know, 70 some odd tickets sold and we will make some more money on pay-per-view too. I think this is a really important moment for them to create a really strong brand for themselves. Again, to, to draw tens of million do- millions of dollars in revenue every year if they do well. Yeah. There is also the X factor though of, I mean, it's pretty hard to convince me that there wasn't a different plan for how the show was going to be distributed, at least in the U.S., when it was envisioned, because if this was always going to be a pay-per-view, do you, I mean, do you really think this, they wouldn't have just made this all out? I don't know. I, I, know, I, who, like, know. I just, who knows it, with, with Tony and wanting to commit to the tradition of doing Labor Day weekend in Chicago. Yeah, but I, well, I mean, look, it's been a while since we've heard about the 100th anniversary of Warner Brothers tied into this show. You know, they completely stopped mentioning that. That was originally supposed to be a big hook along with the 100th anniversary of Wembley Stadium. So whether it was the plan was max and they realized the live streaming wouldn't be ready or that it was too big a gamble for this to be the first live event on max or they couldn't agree to financial terms or whatever. I just I can't see a scenario where this was planned as a pay-per-view. Because David Zaslav did say on on their earnings call last week, Max can now, right now, do live streaming. I mean, just on on a good opinion level, not saying any of us have any inside information here, 
I mean, do you guys agree with me on that? That it just it still feels like this was not planned as a pay per view originally. I think it was God. certainly on the table for it to be maybe a, a live stream event. Yeah, I think it was. I think all the you connect the dots that I think it was always you know worst case we put this on pay per view and not saying this is worst case, but it's like this was their their fallback. And I I think yeah you could have looked at many different options for this. I I think it's a real risk doing back-to-back pay-per-views, but this is also an audience that, I mean, maybe we will look at this and this is a, an audience that they are, they're just going to buy both shows. Um, but it, it certainly wouldn't be the, the ideal uh, timing. If you're going to add a pay-per-view that you would do it on back-to-back weeks that like, you've got to start kind of at least have a main event for this, for all out going into all in. Like, I can't imagine they're just going to give you a cold card coming out of, all in and give you six days to pr- promote that. And it becomes uh, very difficult if you're presenting, you know, two competing cards and people have to choose between one or the other, cause they don't want to spend a hundred dollars. Like it's, it's, it's putting a lot on your audience that I think that will be a kind of a prevailing talking point going into those shows of, you know, the, the are people going to spend that and do they have the time to watch both? Like there's a lot of fans that will, Hey, I'm watching payback on the Saturday night. I've, I've got my wrestling fix. Like we saw from this past Saturday, like people have a limit when it comes to wrestling. It's like, am I watching collision and SummerSlam? No, I'm watching one or the other. I'm not watching both. Um, and, and that it doesn't even matter. I think if there's a price attached to it, like there just is a breaking point and it's, it's realized each week with the hours that are necessary to keep up with these two products. I mean, I think it was very instructive coming out of Saturday that, the number collision did both total audience and in the key demo was more or less identical to what that previous low July 1st show did, which was the same day as money in the bank, but not opposite money in the bank. Cause that was in the UK. And to me, you know, previously it was like, Oh, it was this extreme outlier, you know, being taped, which that show was, doesn't usually hurt. So could it have been that maybe not. I think now that we saw what, Collision did opposite SummerSlam. I feel like, you know, we'll see how much of a pattern this becomes. Granted, it'll be head to head the vast majority of the time. To me, that just suggests that people were wrestling out for Saturday and after Money in the Bank had no desire to watch Collision. And that's why the number dropped so much and recovered so much the next week. Because, again, it's like, it's, you know, with 0.13 rating in the demo and, you know, little over 400,000 viewers or whatever it was like those are that's enough of a dead heat with that July 1st number that I feel like that has to be the obvious inference except for when the uh, the Shayna Baszler and uh, Ronda Rousey MMA fight was on the screen and, and the, the audience for collision increased by about 10% really is that is that true it, it went up 10% on collision I have it here uh, 12 and 13% during the quarter when that match started yes wow that's interesting. And that was for the finish of a Christian Cage live promo. Oh, man. So maybe it was Christian's daughter that was like the big the big draw for that uh, backstage segment. I don't know if it was Metalik and Jay White, but wow, that's very interesting. Well, maybe it was that there was two Jay Whites in the segment, but Jay White and the Jay White carp were cut out. Maybe that was the draw. That's true. It was uh, the, the twin magic uh, that we had on Collision. All right. Well, Bix, uh, it's been great to chat with you. Uh, in keeping with tradition, every time I have you on, uh, I go way over what uh, my time is. But have you noticed I've, incre- I've increased it? Every time I ask you to come on, like the first time was like, we'll, we'll talk for 20 minutes. This one I want to say was like 45-ish, and we only went uh, 
an hour 10 here. So ne- next time I just might ask you to come on, we're going to go an hour easily. <laughs> but right, if, so if, time. yes, I, I want you to get everything out there. You, uh, if you are interested in the debacle that was WCW in the year 2000, I certainly recommend uh, Chris Zellner and David Bixen's fans deep dive into the sale of WCW. And you guys have just kicked off your, your latest Patreon series uh, looking at um, more, more WCW and um, yeah, their, their, their track record when it comes to uh, the handling and treatment of minorities. Yeah. So, you know, the podcast itself between the sheets available wherever you can find your podcasts, uh, at BT Sheets Pod on Twitter, and then the Patreon. So the main podcast is uh, we cover a week in wrestling history as it was, you know, looking at how it was covered in the newsletters and playing clips of TV and stuff when applicable. And on the Patreon, if you're at the $5 a month tier or higher, at patreon.com slash between the sheets, which John has helpfully put on the screen, and I'm sure will be in the show notes as well. Uh, we do a monthly deep dive into a specific topic. Sometimes it's a multi-part series. Sometimes it's a one-off. And yes, right now, so for July, we did part one. August will be part two on the WCW racial discrimination lawsuits, uh, mainly about, you know, the Bobby Walker, Sonny Ono, Hardbody Harrison, et cetera, lawsuit that gets kicked off in 2000, but also some of the previous stuff, like the previous Bobby Walker lawsuit, the uh, Charlie Norris lawsuit, where... Uh, Greg Ganya tried to teach him how to dance like an Indian, among other things. Um, and we also talk about from when Thunderbolt Patterson was trying to sue, and this is like the first hour, I think, of uh, part one, a uh, interview that Ole Anderson gave to, Th- Ole, to excuse me to Thunderbolt Patterson's lawyers in 1992 when Ole was between WCW jobs. And I'm guessing John has listened to this already. I don't know if Brandon has. A shocking level of, if not bluntness, because it's only Anderson, then honesty about how WCW in the office would treat black wrestlers and how, even though he recognized their value and wanted to do outreach in the black community, um, was willing to lowball black wrestlers because he felt like they didn't feel they could negotiate, among many other things. So yeah, if, there, if there's one me- of many takeaways from this show, it's that if you were an aspiring member of WCW's uh, executive or creative staff, whether you're Bill Watts, Ole Anderson or, or Vince Russo, don't do an interview right before your, your big job, because, uh, man, do they have a track record of saying some terrible things that uh, c- could bite you as you will go into uh, Vince Russo's uh, WrestleLine interview, a very famous interview in 1999 with his uh, yeah. vol- volunteering of his thoughts on uh, um, non-English speaking performers. Yes. And then also the ways he has kind of tried to reframe what he said, which is not really an accurate reflection of what he said um, and how that affects the lawsuit and other things. And then you have part two will be coming out later this month and it'll include a lot of, you know, again, a lot more, not necessarily in the weeds, but about the specific Sonny Ono and company lawsuit and, all sorts of stuff. One of the, one of the playing tips who got a settlement being a guy who never wrestled a match for WCW. Um, lots of things that Terry Taylor and others said that were alleged under oath uh, as far as how they spoke to and about minorities. Um, specifically in part two, we'll be hearing about a dispute that Terry Taylor had with Harlem Meat. Um, an article in A Magazine about the lawsuit. I just don't really know what A Magazine is, but the article is very interesting. 
uh, where they talk to the plaintiffs and they also, they, I'll drop this detail. They also talk to Kaz Hayashi. Um, and boy, is there some stuff in here that I can't believe I've, I'd never heard before that people are going to find very interesting about, uh, how WCW used him and how they treated his work fees and stuff like that. I'll leave it at that. But that's coming up uh, then. So yeah, patreon.com slash between the sheets. Like you said, other WCW stuff we've done include, uh, it ended up being four different parts uh, in two different little series about the sale of the company. Uh, you know, Bischoff torch talk after he first got the vice president job and so much other stuff. We all have, have our various ECW shows too in the year, or as we like to call it, the uh, Eddie Gilbert, Paul Heyman canon. Um Thomas yeah, Edward look, Gilbert, for clarification. Thomas Edward Gilbert Jr. Yes. <laughs> Professionally known as Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert. Um, you know, looking at, you know, when they booked Continental together earlier this year, we covered the year in the life of Paul in 93, where he starts in ECW and has the split with Eddie, but also is trying to get the thing going with Jim Crockett. And uh, I feel like I'm forgetting some. And then, oh, you know, and of course, the, the death of ECW after the six-part TNN series. Um which covers into the invasion. If I'll, I'll drop this out there, right? since I'm sure this will be tantalizing for people who haven't heard it. If you want to know about the time Paul Heyman uh, astroturfed the ECW invasion storyline into happening by sending emails under dozens of uh, burner accounts to their wrestling news sites, patreon.com slash between the sheets. And then uh, coming up uh, September and October, we'll be doing uh Todd Gordon's new book, Todd is God, and kind of comparing what he says to what was in the newsletters and what Paul and others said as far as the history. This is a wild book uh, for for those that have not read Todd is God yet. It is is something. So, Yes, I highly recommend it. Uh, We look forward to all of that stuff, Bix. Uh, Thank you so much for for jumping on with us and uh, hopefully Mm -hmm. uh, people having a a lot more insight now into many of these, uh, the WCW lawsuits and, of course, the WrestleMania 3 attendance figure. So we'll definitely do this again sometime, and uh, thanks Mm -hmm. for joining us. Thanks, Bix. Thank you so much for having me. All right, there is uh, David Bixenspan, a man who it was very hard at that press conference on Saturday (laughs) <laughs> straight face as one individual was uh speaking at length on the uh on the uh in front of the media and i like his impression of one uh of one paul Heyman is just it's it's one of those impressions that is now embedded in, in me that when i i hear the original i i can't unhear roman reigns has tilted sports entertainment on its access the marlon brando of professional <laughs> yes. wrestling um but yes that was i i didn't even get to uh uh, chat with you how how did you feel about the uh the press conference on uh saturday you did get a, a very good question in about vince's uh role in creative and uh you know hunter giving uh an answer uh very beneficial to one vince mcmahon but alluding that he is he is not all that 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 involved that he uh is not he is not overriding anything or uh chiming in as as much as maybe yeah which is not thought. consistent with the reporting that's been out there that, that vince has on multiple occasions driven a lot of changes on short notice to raw and or SmackDown. Um, Which we don't know if if maybe this, this surgery has impacted that at all, but I I feel very confident that at least prior to that surgery, he was very much making his feelings known. Right. I I think it's interesting to think about the politics there that Paul Vick is apparently, you know, comfortable 
not giving Vince a lot of the credit. I mean, I know he praised him and, and said without Vince, there wouldn't be any wrestling perhaps. Um, but he, he's comfortable not giving Vince too much credit for the social, the, um, you know, the, the success of, of the content lately. Um, while, you know, just, just sort of, you know, downplaying the, the, the role that he has, I guess it shows that maybe they, you know, they perceive that they understand that people look at whether Vince is involved in creative as, as a negative. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think, do, do you believe that he is, is not involved as, as Paul Vex said? I'm skeptical of that, um, assertion. I, I absolutely do not believe that since, uh, WrestleMania, um, yeah. what his, uh, day to day is like, like, again, I, I would have liked to have known more kind of about the severity of this uh, surgery that he's had. Like it's spinal surgery. Like we're not talking about like, you know, arthroscopic knee surgery that, I mean, in theory, like he's, he's laid up. And is that, is that diminishing his ability to contribute or is it heightening the fact that he is, what else can he do? Um, I don't know if we'd really get a straight answer in, in that sense, but like right. one of the and questions, as I, as I said on Sunday, I was, I was what I was hoping to get at is well, one. Maybe he would tell us some example of of something that Vince has contributed that was a, a good thing. I was leaving it open for that, uh, yeah. but but that you know Vince's his reputation is that he's this tireless worker who never stops working, who doesn't get you know he, you don't really get sick. You can you can work when you're sick, and if if you know he's just giving counsel and and talking, if, if if all he has to do is have a phone conversation with somebody, that's something that you can do even if you're laid up in bed, I suppose. Especially when Vince McMahon. So is that something that's going to, while he's on medical leave, keep him from or not? But yeah, and I guess the the, the question I was like interested to ask would as well be like, does this medical leave coincide with the like the idea that? even if he is healthy to return, is it a distraction for him to come back as this investigation is ongoing? Are they going to look at that as any kind of get this behind us before Vince is thrust back into this? But given the the new information we have through Endeavor with their their own earnings call is that it looks like th- this merger is set to close imminently um, in next month. And the fact that you know, it's it's interesting just the fact that you have uh, Vince McMahon who is so tied to this and this merger is about to go through and what is his involvement going to be at this critical point? Yeah, uh, well, Endeavor said on on their call yesterday that it's going to to close, they expect, in mid to late September. So that's a, a tighter timeline than we've had before. WWE just on their previous, just on the previous week had their call and they said it was still going to be sometime in the latter half of the year, which is now <laughs> so so we have some more clarity on the timeline and and with that i mean this has been consistent but i guess when, when people saw this and mainly it was from your um coverage of this call the fact that there there is going to be cost synergies but this is like this is not a new development but it is just a you know the fact that like this has consistently been stated and like these there are going to be cuts and it's just a question of where they're going to be and you know, Nikon has at least given some leeway or at least explanation that, you know, there are certain areas that they want to be untouched. But whenever these massive mergers go through, I mean, there is a certain gutting process that is kind of the the, the good and the bad that comes with with these mergers and uh, good for the companies that can find all these savings, bad for the people that are kind of on on the ground floor and working for these companies. Yeah, it, it's, it's unfortunate that the employees who have played a, a major role in helping WWE become as profitable as, as it's become and have, have helped WWE become as monetized as it's become, especially in this last year where 
consumer popularity has increased, uh, that there, there will be probably a lot of layoffs uh, shortly after I would think this this merger is is closed. Um, in, in, in terms of, you know, I, I, I tweeted this, this is what was said, this is what was published. Um, but a lot of the reaction is, you know, oh, they're going to cut this and that talent. I, I don't see any reason, obvious reason why that's going to happen. I and mean, Nikon has said that the areas that they're going to protect the most is going to be production and creative. And I would think talent, he didn't say talent, but talent goes along with that. I think it just, it, it's, it speaks to the difference uh, that the different way that wrestling fans look at these stories and the different way that, uh, you know, people who are, who are covering, you know, to be stock, look at these stories in that, you know, for, for people who are covering the business side of this. And I don't mean me, but like people who are, you know, stock analysts and things like that, obviously they, they think, Oh yeah, this is, this means corporate employees, which it does um, versus wrestling fans who, you know, when they think of their being cuts, they, they think of the people who they recognize from television uh, being cut. Um, but I mean, I suppose they could, close this merger and then develop a budget and say, well, we're going to spend less on talent than, than we are currently. And then obviously that would lead to cuts, but, but no obvious reason of, you know, it, that is similar to the synergies that they talk about here in that, you know, when you merge these two companies, you're not going to need a lot of the services. You're going to have a lot of redundancies in terms of providing WWE with the services that it provides itself with now independently. Just on the UFC side, there was a pretty significant development today in the antitrust suit that has been going on since 2014. Um, this uh, today, this is after like over two and a half years of it's been relatively quiet on this suit. Um, the judge involved in the case um, did rule that uh, this can go forward and they've certified the suit as a class action suit. So this would extensively it. Uh, will enable up to approximately 1,200 fighters that fought for the UFC at least one time between 2010 and 2017 that could be part of this suit and and receive damages if it gets that far. And you know the 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 whole um, the decision is you you can read it if you follow uh, John Nash at Bloody Elbow. Uh, Eric McGraken is another great uh, reporter, and yeah, we will see. This is it's a positive step forward uh, for the case and they are seeking damages between 800 million and 1.6 billion, which in a class action suit, those could be trebled if they, if a judge rules in their favor. So this could be um, an enormous uh, amount that the UFC uh, could be slated to face here. And I think you would automatically look at how the UFC and WWE have very similar uh, makeups in terms of, how their talent and fighters are, are paid and whether they see both industries as, as similar as well. But it's, it's a big case and it's been going on for nearly a decade, but it was a, a big step forward for those involved in this case. Yeah. I mean, I don't, you know, pretend to un- understand the le- legal issues that are happening here. Um, if it's, if it's terrible news for UFC, I mean, the, the, the Endeavor stock and the W stock aren't showing it. Endeavor stock is still up 6% on the day and W stock is up 2% on the day. Um, I, I, I have seen people ask me if, does this mean, I mean, look at, you got a class action lawsuit here uh, and it's a, it's an antitrust lawsuit mm-hmm. against UFC. You have an antitrust lawsuit against WWE in the MLW case. Yes. Um, that sounds like, you know, it's, it's about monopoly and things like that. You would think that that would come up in, in a, in a, you know, regulatory review, whether, whether UFC and WWE should merge. Um, perhaps we need to talk to a lawyer, but I don't get the sense that this, this, these issues are going to stop WWE from completing its merger. I don't think so either. No. Um, 
Lightshed Partners, um, Brandon Ross, who's a previous guest on our show, um, put out an update for uh, their, their uh, audience about what is the interest level of Fox when it comes to SmackDown. And Brandon Ross continues to be very skeptical and mentioning the uh, uh, past weekend's Big Ten realignment that gives Fox even more games to expand its football coverage and uh, questioning if Fox is going to renew its licensing agreement with the WWE. And he writes, we remain unsure who will take SmackDown. We wonder if TKO will attempt to package SmackDown with the UFC as part of a Disney renewal after the TKO deal closes. However, that could be complicated for ESPN, given the uncertainty around ESPN's future at Disney. In better news for WWE, we believe Comcast's NBC Universal will re-up on Raw fairly shortly. WWE programming is critical to USA Network's future, since USA basically offers no other programming value outside of Raw. Ouch, if you're USA Network. Brandon Ross just slamming down your programming slate, um, but not wrong either. Um, and this kind of continues like the next rights renewal. It seems like the the ball that is up in the air is SmackDown, and uh, just the way things are shaking out, it certainly seems that um, you know that another home for SmackDown could be very likely in in the scenario unless Fox comes to the table and I, I think would have to go above that $205 million figure. I think if that's their ceiling, I think it's, I, I just don't, I can't see WWE um, agreeing to uh, no increase. Right. It's uh, I, so what we're talking about here is that the possibility that WWE could soon announce renewal for raw does that involve NXT? Who knows? But soon announce renewal for Raw, that be complete and public, and still have the, the SmackDown deal outstanding. And if if Fox is not is not a future home in twenty, it would be fall twenty twenty four. Then the other players would would include perhaps FX, which is owned by Disney. Disney just reported earnings, by the way. Um, but would would include maybe FX, according to a report from the New York Post. Could include Amazon Prime Video. Um, th- there was interesting discussion that we talked about last week in terms of if you know if you think about the next five year deal beginning fall twenty twenty four that goes into like fall if it's a five year deal let's say or four year deal even then we're talking about the fall of twenty twenty eight or twenty twenty nine by then cord cutting has happened even more and you've got an even less coverage of the tradition of of the TV uh, home universe. So maybe there needs to be a streaming component to not just your PLEs in your library, but to your core content, uh, Raw and SmackDown. In the case of NBC Universal, well, I guess that could mean that there could be some simulcast uh, at some point during the term of Raw onto Peacock. Could imagine that. Uh, what would be the streaming home for SmackDown? In, in the case of Fox, I don't, I don't know where that would even be. I think as we discussed last time, uh, because Fox doesn't have at least a subscription. Um, streaming service that 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 WWE would would fit well into fox nation is not it <laughs> I, I don't think to be which is a fast is it either um so who knows i mean it, it, if, it, if it's on uh amazon prime video I, I'm, I'm concerned about the reach of amazon prime video even though yeah it's in a lot of homes um but it doesn't have it's not something there's a lot of friction between me turning on amazon prime video versus the vast majority of people turning on fox and the and the the promotion that that SmackDown benefits from by being on Fox and, and it being promoted during NFL games and things like that. Um, so, so what, what Brandon Ross is talking about here is potentially maybe um, 
them waiting until the merger is complete, perhaps this fall. And then you've got a, a combined TKO, which is WWE and UFC. And UFC is it has its rights held by Disney, by ESPN. And maybe SmackDown rights could be dealt with UFC rights to Disney. It's very plausible. Sure. Do you see any kind of effect on SmackDown if they were to go out and announce a Raw renewal and leave SmackDown hanging? Do you think like there is any um, value to that as opposed to just waiting till both deals are complete and we can announce it all as one tidy package? Not, not that I can think of. Can you? I'm just thinking of like it's it makes it clear SmackDown is on the open market, but I would think anybody that is in these talks is more than aware of, of that, that fact. I guess it also goes to show like if SmackDown is your quote unquote free agent, is there like granted the, their numbers are doing very well now, but are you more incentivized to like load up this show when raw can, you know, is essentially, you know, it's locked in that SmackDown should be your number one show. And, whether it's just riding this bloodline wave or it's just putting more and more that this is the show we are shopping and it is the one that we should be presenting our, our biggest valuable content on. Yeah, it could be. I mean, I don't know that SmackDown needs a ton of help as long as you know, there's questions around whether Roman Reigns is, is healthy. But Bottom I mean, of the he, third. That's right. But he rarely wrestles. So, I mean, he's going to, according to Sean Ross, he's not going to miss his scheduled appearances anyway. And if all he's got to do is do backstage segments or stand in the ring and hold a microphone and wrestle every four months or whatever it is, he could probably get by. Hail um, to the chief this Friday night. That's right. It's not missing that. All right. Let's, uh, let's finish off with uh, just some television numbers. We went over these uh, w- with Bix and Span, but Collision did 417,000 viewers on Saturday night, a 0.13 in the demo. So these would be um, their lowest since the July 1st taped edition of the show. And these also uh, coincided, of course, with their first head-to-head with a WWE premium live event going against SummerSlam. So they were down... 44% in viewership, 54% in the 18 to 49 demographic. So you were coming off a pretty positive number the week prior that had the FTR Adam Cole MJF match. And uh, this week, if you wanted to know what the impact SummerSlam was going to have, this would give you a pretty good indication on top of a, a UFC uh, fight night card as well that did you know, very good viewership. 1.3 million viewers for the main card on ESPN. Yeah. And for, for a ranking, which everybody's curious to know what to do for a ranking, because according to, I think it was a flight report, it's it's the ranking that, that the network is you know, reportedly very interested in. It, this ranked among cable originals, uh, number nine, and I believe including cable reruns, number 16. So yes, uh, some episodes of Friends and an episode on Comedy Central of Seinfeld outranked in the demo collision on this night. Um but it, it, you know, SummerSlam is the third. Is probably going to be the third biggest WPLE. Um, imagine this is going to go against WrestleMania uh, and the, the effect that's going to have on this one. Um, but it, I think you know we've got a big challenge coming up for for Collision and to see whether or not Collision can really stay focused on producing really strong shows that people want to tune in to see. Um, they're going to be going against big sports competition in college football beginning in September. And there's going to be preemptions. The preemptions are coming. Um, and that's really disrupted, I think, the, the regular viewership for, for Rampage. Um, and w- will that disrupt Collision? Will that 
take the focus off of collision and, and what it's about? Are they going to punt on a lot of these preemption episodes? We'll see. It's, it's really important, I think, for their, their next TV deal, depending on whether, when, when that gets signed, um, that they've got to continue to deliver a strong enough audience that it's, you know, at least in the top 10 or something like that, you know, better yet, top five. And the raw number on Monday. So they had a commercial free first hour. I was just texting with Brandon saying, you know what? Raw is not long enough. I don't get enough wrestling every week. Commercial free, raw. We also had limited commercial breaks for NXT on Tuesday night. So they were doing that deal uh, this week. But 1,888,000 viewers for the show following SummerSlam, 0.61 in the 18 to 49 demo. So they were up 7% in viewers, 14% in the demo, and up 22% among adults 18 to 34 uh, for this week. And uh, I have actually not seen uh, the, the quarters yet, Brandon, but I'm imagining uh, the first hour. What, what did you take away from the commercial free hour? Was this an effective tool? It did well. Um, but the, uh, yeah, it, it did over 2 million viewers for one quarter. I'm pulling it up now, but it did do over 2 million viewers for two, two different quarters on, at 8.15 and 8.30. Um, I mean, it did, did pretty well. And then the, uh, the LA Night and Miz segment appeared to have popped a rating. Um, certainly in the demos, they crossed over into the, the 10 o'clock hour, getting close to 3 million viewers again for that quarter and getting as high as a 0.66 in the demo for that, for that segment. Uh, I, I think the, the remarkable takeaway, though, is that you know, each of the last three years, if you look at the ratings that Raw did right after WrestleMania, it did like a post-WrestleMania level number in terms of how much it popped versus the, the trailing four weeks. Uh, you know, we're looking at like a 30% pop, 40% pop. I think there's just a lot of news coming out of those, those SummerSlam episodes, or, you know, coming out of SummerSlam that people, I guess, tuned in for, uh, for Raw the following week. Um, whether it was Roman Reigns' return, I believe in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe the Vince news helped in, in 2022. I'm not sure what was going on in 2021, but this was, this was up a little bit, but not that much. Only like 8% versus the trailing four weeks, not the 20, 30% we've seen in the past. Um, not a lot of news, I guess, coming out of this. I, 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 I sure, you know, felt like it was a long show. I know we all did. Uh, got our yeah, I don't know. It was like, it was a number that like, I, I do understand like they are in, you know, fewer homes versus last year. But I mean, even if you're looking like this was, I'm, I'm looking I, at what, what it was, what was it doing lately? The last four weeks. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's a, it's a great point. Like it didn't it, like, again, 7% increase in, in viewership and it was, you know, the third most watched WWE event on Peacock in history. So a lot of people saw SummerSlam and yeah, it, you know, they, they got an increase, but it, it wasn't at your usual jump that you would see for uh, a post SummerSlam. Uh, like I was just looking at like last year, what, what they followed. And I think some of that there, you can attribute some of that to like, we had this period where Vince is removed in the lead up to SummerSlam. And I think there was some of that embedded in people that, okay, this is, this is Paul's real start was after SummerSlam, but I, I still attribute it to it's, it's post SummerSlam. And that was going to drive last year's number the most. So there you have it, um, the latest on uh, Raw and uh, collision numbers. My final topic for you is, as we are about a week removed from the Vince McMahon investigation disclosure, um, I guess, w- what do you see as sort of the, like, do you imagine this is going to be something that is going to be just kind of in the background unless an indictment comes down? I mean, it would seem that that is the next logical step in this whole process. And it's sort of just going to be this, this background story until like something like an indictment comes down. And then I think that would, that would put this 
it's it it will be interesting to see if this becomes like a major story outside of wrestling like Vince being indicted or if this is just like last week this disclosure was made i wouldn't say it was, it felt like a big vince scandal in terms of the coverage it received yeah or is this something that just is never followed up on um i think we need to talk to somebody who has you know some legal background to get an idea of how much mm-hmm. legal exposure is there for perhaps shareholder fraud or something like that because i think that's i have to think that that is that is the issue at hand here is that you you spent somewhere around 20 million dollars uh out of your pocket and and didn't record that as company expense um that's probably fraud how much exposure is there is, is you know is there are there fines what kind of penalty would he be facing yeah, I think that's yeah. It'll be yeah. It, it would be great to have so- someone on that has like a a deeper sense of uh, we'll where Rolodex. Yeah, we have we have a growing Rolodex uh, here at Pollock and Thurston headquarters. All right, well, that's going to uh, wrap up the show. Again, a thank you to David Bixenspan for joining us, and you can follow along at patreon.com slash wrestlenomics where you can catch Brandon with the uh, the rotating crew of Jesse Collings and uh, Chris Gullo. I believe Jesse will be. With you this Sunday. It's, All three, I expect. Chris is back as well. This, this, this coming Triumphant Sunday. return. Yes. So they will be live on Wednesday. Or Sorry. Today's what? Is today Wednesday? Today's Wednesday. Today's Wednesday. Yeah. I'm on, I'm on G1 time. I don't know what day it is. <laughs> I don't know what week it is. What I do know is that I think, I don't have the latest standings. I think yeah. we have a winner of the. Is it, what, has, has the regular block play ended now? The block play is done. Today's D block yeah. concluded. And going into today, Brandon Thurston, who just a few weeks ago was like, just looking at his standing and um, the, the, the E block standings, I, I don't see uh, updated yet, but um, Brandon wasn't first going into today. So barring some cataclysmic uh, demise, I think Brandon might be this year's E block winner. What do I win? What do I get? Oh, you get uh you, you get a one year extension of chatting with me. Everyone's okay. that's, that's the, the grand Good. prize. Yeah. Good. So Good. I was really glad that, uh, Brandon from New Jersey didn't win. I, I don't think I could, I could live up to, to that that bargain. But yes, uh, follow everything uh, from WrestleNomics and uh, what uh, what other things do you uh, have out this week? You've been you've been busy this week. Somewhat, yeah. There is a, a live event uh, report that is out. That's free for everybody uh, on WrestleNomics.com. If you want to read that, the the comparing the live events for WWE and AEW, comparing them market to market. Same event to same event. So, like, what did a Raw do versus the last time Raw was in that city? Uh, you know, the moral of the story is, you know, W continues to look very good. It's a mixed story for AEW. Um, and we have a Google Trends report for companies. We're going way, way into the, uh, into the Japanese, uh, pro wrestling industry there with, uh, with, with, uh, Japanese wrestling companies as well as, uh, companies in the U.S. and Mexico. Uh, that's there now for subscribers and we'll have tomorrow a talent, Google talent. Who are the most searched for wrestling talent? in the world uh top 100 that'll come out tomorrow morning a list yes love it yes uh always usually whenever a list comes out what i love are all the the responses that are like nailed it mm-hmm. perfect list exactly most of them. yeah yeah that, that's it okay we'll look out for that uh tonight waiting and i will be live right after dynamite on the uh the post youtube channel uh discussing dynamite and then we will hop on over at postwrestlingcafe.com uh, where we will chat about the world according to marty Janetti, the season finale of dark side of the ring and as a bonus for anyone that downloads rewind to dynamite uh, late tonight early thursday uh you will get a bonus interview with uh chris hero discussing his new role as a producer at aew as well as uh, chatting about this week's uh west coast pro shows 
and even a little bit on exotic Adrian Street. So uh, that that will be a bonus interview for those that download Rewinded Dynamite uh, tonight. So check out all of that at postwrestling.com, wrestlenomics.com. And that is it for us. Thanks to everyone for tuning in for another edition of Pollock and Thurston.